Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the great ideas and books that have shaped Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. Naomi Reinhold is back to talk to me about therapeutic philosophies. Hi, Naomi. Hey, Gil. So, last podcast, I spoke with Charlie about Lucretius's On the Nature of Things. He's an Epicurean, but he's somewhat later than when therapeutic philosophies sort of develop in Western civilization. Could you just kind of give us a broad picture of when and why therapeutic philosophies sort of develop in the West? Sure. The origins of therapeutic philosophy actually are coincidental with the golden age of Greece. Agenes of Sinope, who's a cynic, that's one of the schools, was a contemporary of Aristotle. And the three other schools were founded by people who lived, well, they were born during the life of Aristotle, but their lives were all about the same length at the same time. And they started doing their work maybe 40 or 50 years after the death of Aristotle. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the origin. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, though they become popular later, mm -hmm. their, their roots are in the golden age of Greece. Now, the way they get spread, and I think you talked about this last time, is through the work of Alexander the Great, I suppose you could say. These therapeutic philosophies are all often also called Hellenistic philosophies, mm -hmm. and Hellenism is the general term for the spread of Greek culture, language, thought, that sort of thing throughout the ancient world as Alexander the Great conquered stuff and planted cities, many of them named after him, hence mm -hmm. all the Alexandrias around. Mm -hmm. He was a student of Aristotle, perhaps not a very good one, but he was <laughs> he really thought that that Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek language was just the best stuff. Now, part of this is because he's a Macedonian, and Macedonians have a big inferiority complex about not really being as Greek as the people on the Attic Peninsula. Particularly Athenians. Uh-huh. So, they've got to out-Greek all the Greeks. <clears throat> yes. So, Alexander's like, I am so Greek, I'm going to take Greek everywhere. Mm -hmm. Those people in India, yeah, they're going to find out about mm -hmm. how awesome Greek mm -hmm. culture is. So... These philosophies get spread along with that of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle throughout wherever he goes. And then the Roman Empire, although, I mean, originally it was more the Roman Republic, but they kind of pick up where he le left off, where he leaves off. The Romans are known not only in philosophy, but in architecture and art and literature. You name the field. If it's not technology, they don't come up with anything. <laughs> they take other people's stuff and they say, this is really cool. Let's do it good. Yeah. So, you know, they do aqueducts and stuff. Yes. But their philosophies, much much of the Hellenistic philosophy becomes Roman philosophy because mm -hmm. the Romans pick it up from mm -hmm. Alexander spreading it around because the Romans pick up all mm -hmm. those places. And they say, wow, this is great stuff. Mm -hmm. This will sure help us because it turns out life is hard and these people have ideas about how to cope with that. So before we get sort of more into the, the whys of this and, you know, why philosophy might take a turn from the more systematic approach that Plato and Aristotle had to these more therapeutic philosophies, I just want to clarify 
the term therapeutic philosophy because mm-hmm. we will we will often say that it is much more common to refer to the as you were saying as hellenistic philosophies as far as i know therapeutic philosophy is kind of our own, like in house like i have not fi- found these philosophies to be referenced as therapeutic philosophies sort of in general elsewhere yeah if you take a if you take a philosophy class at least in grad school on this era, it, the term does come up, but it's not something that you would run into, say, in philosophy 101 yeah. or in common parlance. It's more of an informal kind of term yeah. than it is sort of a label. Yeah. Hellenistic is very much geographical and time-oriented. Mm-hmm. It says nothing about the philosophy itself. Sure. So, therapeutic, it comes from terapeo, which is the Greek word for to remedy something. Mm-hmm. And we get therapy from it, obviously. Right. But the idea is... There is a problem in human life, maybe more than one, Mm -hmm. and it's the job of philosophy to remedy that problem. Mm -hmm. And there are four main schools, at least the way we divide them, of therapeutic philosophies. And they each identify what that problem is a little differently Mm -hmm. and each offer correspondingly a different solution. Mm -hmm. Now, some of their solutions have a fair amount of overlap. Sure. For example, there's a couple that say the way that you deal with the problem is you follow nature and Mm. you really live by nature. Mm -hmm. But they mean really different things when they say that. Sure. Okay. So let's go ahead and go into the four schools and let's talk about what they identify those main problems people are facing to be. And then we can move on and sort of talk about how those problems get solved by each different school. Sounds good. Well, the the four main schools are Stoicism, Epicureanism, Skepticism, and Cynicism. Stoicism, the Stoics identify the problem being a kind of suffering that finds its origin in one's passions. Specifically, it's fighting against fate, Mm -hmm. not liking the way things are going and being Mm -hmm. all anxious and angry about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Not unlike some Eastern philosophies, meaning Mm -hmm. Hindu and Buddhism, Mm -hmm. Buddhist rather, their answer is, the Greek term is apatheia, which is without passions. So, you just don't let stuff affect you. Uh So, the Stoics, it's, it's passion, it's the way that our emotions pain us when things are not going the way we want them to. Epicureanism, Epicurus identified the suffering of human beings as originating in two fears, the fear of the gods. If you remember from the podcast on polytheism, Mm -hmm. you had to be afraid of the gods because they were super powerful, super capricious, and Mm -hmm. they could completely destroy your life. Right. So, you always had to be giving them stuff and praising them and making sure they were on your side. And that leads to a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that Epicurus said that we're afraid of that makes us miserable is death. Mm-hmm. And he had a particular answer to that. You may have talked about it with Lucretius. Yeah, yeah. Lucretius, that's one of the places you, Lucretius just completely goes in line with Epicurus, if, as best I remember. Skepticism says we have anxiety and suffering because of doubt, because mm-hmm. there are really important things that we need to feel sure about in order to function in life, in order to feel secure. And we don't Mm -hmm. feel that we know those things. Mm -hmm. We're full of doubt. It leads to anxiety. 
depression, that sort of thing, and suffering. You see a pattern here. It's all about suffering mm -hmm. and what causes the suffering. And finally, cynicism. Cynicism points the finger at cultural institutions, mm -hmm. at the ways that humans organize themselves. Mm -hmm. If we could just get back to being just human instead of whatever human culture we create, mm -hmm. like that's how you get away from the mm -hmm. kind of suffering mm -hmm. that they think we're under. The suffering and pain that the cynics identify has to do with other people's expectations of us mm -hmm. and the internalized expectations we have for ourselves based on our culture yeah. and based on these inhibitions, these taboos in a certain sense. One way to look at these four schools of philosophy is that each one takes a natural coping mechanism and turns it into a more universal way of thinking or living. So who hasn't gotten anxious about not knowing what kind of person they need to be, what other people expect about them, and wanted to do something about it. And as we get into each of their solutions, you'll see that these are ways that in some, in some sense are healthy in the individual in certain circumstances, whether it's a good idea to turn them into whole universalizable ways of dealing with life, period. That's another question. Mm -hmm. So let's take each school and get into more specifics about some of the people involved with them and some of their distinctive doctrines. We'll start with Stoicism. Where does the term Stoicism come from? It actually comes from the place that these Stoics hung out and argued about things. <laughs> there was an area in Athens, I think it's on the side of the Agora, the marketplace, where they had a porch and there were murals on it. And it was just called the Painted Porches. Painted Porches in Greek is Stoa Poikile. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get the Stoics from. They were the people who hung out on the porch. So these are like the porchies or something? Yeah. I, I will probably ask this for each one. Do we have any idea? And if we don't, it's fine. But do we have any idea if this was their name for themselves? Or as so often as happens in history, was this the name that they got labeled with by people who were, you know, had maybe a more derisive view of hmm. their of their philosophy. Yeah. Well, this isn't super derisive. It's more just descriptive. Yeah. Oh, I want to go talk to whoever it is, you know, Zeno. Yeah. There's a Zeno of Sidium who's one of the, the main founders in Athens. Where yeah. am I going to find him? Oh, he's he's over on the painted porches. Yeah. Just like uh, the peripatetics. Which, yeah. How do you know? Oh, there's the ones just walking around right, talking right. about stuff. It's a little dismissive, though. Right? It is a like, little bit, yeah. The, the, it's so frequent that the names are either a little dismissive or, or at least that the group itself might take issue mm -hmm. with that naming. And it's, it's interesting how often that happens. In any case, during the life of Socrates and Plato, who are, or I suppose even later, who are the interesting figures in the Stoic movement? Well, the Stoics, they come in a little bit after Socrates and Plato. The first person of note, I just mentioned, Zeno of Sidium. Uh -huh. uh, there's a lot of Zenos running around in philosophy. This is just the guy who founded Stoicism. He lives from the 300s to the 200s BC, he's pretty much a contemporary of Epicurus with Epicureanism and this guy named Pyrrho with skepticism. Born in Sidium, but moved to Athens, started a school there around 300 BC. He started actually studying under a cynic, but then went his own direction. Mm -hmm. Two people 
that you might have heard of. Uh, Cicero, the Roman orator and statesman, he and Cato were both opposed to Julius Caesar mm-hmm. and were contemporaries, obviously, of Julius Caesar. Interestingly, Lucretius is also a contemporary of those three men. Mm-hmm. They oppose Caesar for political reasons mostly, but somewhat for philosophical ones. Cicero, specifically, was very influenced by the Stoics if he wasn't a Stoic himself. There was another Roman Stoic named Epictetus, whose works we still have. He lived from 55 to 135 AD. A little bit later. Yeah, a little bit later. And then you push it further, Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, Mm. 121 to 180 AD, usually gets identified as a Stoic. Again, very influenced by Stoicism. Mm -hmm. If you're going to look at what he writes, probably, you know, 75% is Mm -hmm. pretty identifiable as Stoic. Mm -hmm. One of the characteristics of Hellenistic or therapeutic philosophy is people kind of mix and match. Yeah. There's a real tendency to just pick the bits that you like and Mm -hmm. see if they fit together. This is called Mm -hmm. eclecticism. Yeah. That's that's probably fairly familiar in our culture. It's less formal than having sort of these sort of named schools or whatnot, but there's certainly, you know, self-help books and these sorts of things are generally going down one line or other. And some of their solutions are, you know, very akin to the solutions that the therapeutic philosophers are going to offer. And so people sort of reading two different self-help books that kind of are from different philosophical, you know, backgrounds that the people who are reading them might not be aware of, or the authors might not even be aware of that eclecticism is sort of live and well Mm -hmm. in our current society. Very much so. So let's talk about the sort of distinctives of Stoicism. You were saying earlier, Marcus Aurelius, 75% of what he says could probably be identified with Stoicism. So what are those sort of markers of someone who's a Stoic? The really big thing about Stoicism with regards especially to its ethical way of thinking, its ethics, there are two elements that I think are determinative of Stoic ethics. One is their reverence for nature, Mm -hmm. which they take to be equivalent to reason. Mm -hmm. And the second is this eternal recurrence Mm -hmm. and sort of logical determinism. And I'll flesh that out in a second. So I said back at the beginning that part of that for Stoics, part of what causes fear and anxiety is this fighting against fate where you you can't deal with the things that are happening and you don't want it to go that way. The Stoics believed that everything is fated. It is impossible for things to be other than they are. Now, this comes to their equivalence of reason and nature and a couple Mm -hmm. other things, but with the reason and nature thing, nature reflects reason. Reason is complete. It makes sense together. It is the best way it can be. In other words, nature, the world as it is, is already the best world that is possible, given the materials or whatever you want to set as a background. Sure. Well, you've got every single thing in your life, in my life, in the life of the whole universe planned out to the atom. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if that's what you're thinking, where's human freedom in that? Mm -hmm. How can you help but feel unhappy and anxious because you can't change anything? Mm -hmm. They say that... Well, you can't change what happens, but you can change how you feel about it. Mm -hmm. Logical determinism 
is like arguments where you set out premises and you get to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. And if the premises are true, the conclusion has to be true. Mm -hmm. It's like setting up a whole universe like that, where you just have one thing following after the other, and it has to be that way, given the way things started. So if you think that's the case, either you have a really long time, the universe just keeps on going one thing after another, or you have that happen with a beginning or without a beginning, with an end, without an end, that kind of thing. Or you do what the Stoics do, and you say, it's all contained, and it happens over and over again. Eternal recurrence. Nietzsche, 19th century German philosopher, he steals this and runs with it, right? Right. But they think it's literally the case. This is not a thought experiment. It just is what it is. Next time the world comes around, you're going to do the exact same thing you did this time. Right. So they have this idea of eternal recurrence. But there is some sense in which, regardless of how we might question this, that you can sort of affect the way that you're going to take that on, Mm -hmm. right? At least in your internal attitudes, there are ways to cope with the fact that what's going to happen is going to happen. Right. Can you tease that out and talk about what does that look like? How do you you sort of do that? Or how do they see you doing that Mm -hmm. practically? There's a couple things. One is they really believe in your ability to talk yourself into stuff. This is part of why Marcus Aurelius has this great big bunch of meditations or these thinking thoughts he's thinking to himself and then writing down, right? You're, think, you're putting yourself into the right frame of mind. How do you do this? Well, you think about you can't change it. So what's the point in fighting it? Like it literally is pointless. You can't right. do anything about it. Also, as it turns out, reason is good which means nature is good, which means whatever else is the case, as a whole, the way the universe is going is a good thing. Now, the fact that it entails suffering on your part and on other people's parts, that's part of what they're trying to figure out. Like, why is that the case? Well, it's the case because you keep fighting it. If you could just learn not to fight it, you would not suffer. That's kind of what they're saying. Now, Okay, so does that mean I'm not fighting it and yet, you know, I'm getting tortured to death? This did happen to some Stoics. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of them were political and bad things happen to you right. when you're a Roman politician sometimes. Right. Well, this they, they kind of have to do some gymnastics about what really entails suffering, what mm. really is good. They go a little Platonist. Right. They're like, well, okay, fine, you're hurting my body, but you're not really getting right. at me. Right. So you're not hurting me. Yes, the good man cannot be harmed because Mm -hmm. the thing that's most essential about him is unharmable. Exactly. Okay, so that's stoicism. Right. Let's move on to talking about the we have the epicureans we talked a lot last week about lucretius and epicureanism so we might move we might move along a little bit quickly obviously lucretius is a famous figure mm-hmm. in the epicureans but who else in this movement is sort of significant Honestly, Lucretius and Epicurus are the only ones that get any kind of name recognition. Uh, uh, Anybody else is just sort of, eh, they're there. Yeah. Or there's somebody that Epicurus wrote a letter to, that kind of thing. It's this is one of the one of those times where the group is named after their mm-hmm. their founder. So not not this sort of dismissive whatever. Yes. So we talked last week about how Because of the way that matter and void work, the way that atoms in the void work, there's just 
stuff is just going to sort of move on and you know, the gods are the same kind of thing we are, and they don't have any reason to worry about you, so you don't need to worry about them. So we sort of covered, we talked a lot about Lucretius's cosmology and his ideas of science, but what are some other distinctives philosophically for the Epicureans? Well, they're most famous for their ethic. Mm-hmm. Unsurprisingly, if you talk about someone being an Epicurean, you're kind of getting at what they're getting at. Nowadays, when we say someone's Epicurean, we generally mean something like they like really tasty food or something. This is because the Epicureans were hedonists. Mm -hmm. Hedonists are people who believe that pleasure is the highest good. Mm -hmm. Some of them even would say it's the only good, but uh, we'll stick with the ones who say it's the highest good. That's a more common perspective. Mm One way you can take that is say, oh, well, then your ethic is you just chase pleasure. That's mm-hmm. all you have to do. The better, bigger the pleasure, the better. The mm-hmm. more pleasure, the better. That kind of thing. Epicurus is not that kind of a hedonist. Mm-hmm. He is a lot more into avoiding pain. Mm-hmm. He says pleasure is the greatest good. Pain is the greatest evil. Right. But here's the thing. If you have a really great pleasure... As soon as you come down from it, that's pain. Right. So how do you avoid pain? You stay super tranquil. Right. Very even keel. No high pleasures, no low pains. Yeah. You just chill. Yeah. All the time. Tranquility. Right. Yeah. Is the you're, virtue for You're him. not necessarily, you know, that kind of perspective. You're not going to like pursue alcoholism. Right. Well, who pursues alcoholism, but you're not going to go drinking as like a big, you know, yeah. just every day, just, just go all out and, and get, you know, blackout drunk for whatever enjoyment that may pose, because the next day you will be there's this for big <laughs> drawback. Exactly. So is this the sort of thing where you might see, you know, like they might, they might be interested in something like exercise, because even though it is sort of momentarily you know unpleasant like on in the long run Mm -hmm. it's sort of more everything's going to kind of work better and that sort of thing yeah or are they going to be are they going to try to avoid that because that is some suffering or kind of how is that kind of well they would take exercise as just a part of health yeah right and so you want to have good health because that gives you less pain overall and a more enjoyable life yeah the the other thing well (laughs) thing about health Epicurus is somewhat notorious for making a comment about how he could live on water and barley cakes. Uh (laughs) Because, you know, barley cakes, they're not going to give you indigestion. Uh (laughs) They're very nutrient-rich, but also they're not, like, delectable. So, you're so disappointed because you didn't get the same thing again the next day. You're not going to get tired of them. I mean, I would get tired of barley cakes, but this is Epicurus. And so the sort of the joke is, you know, you go to an Epicurean potluck and it's just all water and barley cakes. Everyone knows what to bring to Epicurus's potlucks. The other thing, of course, is that these pleasures that Epicurus thinks that we should actively pursue are the rational, moderate pleasures, the ones that are not bodily, for example, Mm. pleasures of the mind, which Mm. remain, which can't be taken from us, Mm. except perhaps by senility. Sure. But there's a bit of a question about, like, what your experience is being senile anyway. Yeah. But he doesn't want you chasing after, as you said, drunkenness or whatever. Yeah. None of these temporary highs that yeah. lead to lows. You think long term. You think 
yeah. things that last. You think things that can't be taken away from you, that kind of stuff. So serious hobbyists. Yeah. The well, and friendship also. Okay. Like okay. friendship yeah. is a major one for okay. Epicurus okay. because like you can encourage each other yeah. and you can have shared activities and yeah. they're not going to want to like drag you out down to the sure. bar and get you drunk because sure. they're also good Epicureans who will give yeah. you barley. So that hedonism in our vernacular has a little bit of a negative connotation mm-hmm. and this you know, in some ways just sounds like at least the way that our culture thinks about kind of like moderation. <laughs> yeah. Know? It's very, can you have extreme moderation? This is extreme moderation. Yes. 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 Right. Avoid all the ups and downs. Uh-huh. There are some Epicureans who do go the full on hedonist route, but that's, mm-hmm. that's not Epicurus and not his serious yeah. students. All right. So we've talked about Stoics and Epicureans. Let's move on to skeptics. Obviously, a we understand what we mean by a skeptic because mm-hmm. that's what a like the term comes from their stance. Who are some who are some famous members of this group? Well, there's actually a couple different kinds of skeptics. There's okay. two schools. One of them is the academic school, and this just comes out of Plato's Academy. Mm-hmm. The Academy is the school that's founded by Plato. Everyone who's in the Academy is supposedly a follower of Plato. Mm-hmm. Of course, as it always happens, within a generation, there's 20 sub-schools of the sure. Academy, and half of them probably Plato would disown, but, <laughs> you know, whatever. That group, they basically looked at Plato's writings, the Socratic dialogues. They noticed something about them. They went, well, they needed to notice two things. There's a lot of back and forth. And instead of reading this as like a constructive dialogue, they read it as debate. Uh-huh. And then they get to the end and half the time or more, you get to the end of a platonic dialogue and they haven't found the answer to the question that they uh-huh. were starting to try. Uh-huh. This is called aporia. Uh-huh. It just means no way forward, right. more or less. And they went, oh, well, what does that mean? Well, that means you just can't know stuff. Mm-hmm. So they became they became skeptics in something closer to the modern sense where they're like, you just can't know stuff and we should argue about it. Mm-hmm. This is a less interesting school of skepticism to my mind. It seems like it's a bit of a dead end. There's another sort of skepticism that was started by a guy named Pyrrho of Ellis. He was, again, a contemporary of Epicurus and Zeno of Sidium. Um, and his version of skepticism has that ethical component we were talking about earlier where you want to have freedom from doubt because Uh doubt causes suffering and how do you get freedom from doubt well you don't get it by becoming certain about things because Uh that's not really possible sure you do it by stop you stop freaking out about not knowing stuff basically it's like yeah you don't have to know stuff you can doubt everything and just leave it like that and it's fine yeah well okay if you doubt everything how on earth are you supposed to make decisions right that seems silly well they have an answer you Mm. go according to probability yeah what's likely to be the case sure those has a 60 percent chance of being the case sure let's do that it's kind of like the weather right yeah 80 percent chance of rain yeah you take an umbrella 10 percent chance of rain oh i live in eugene yeah we take an umbrella anyway Except we don't really use umbrellas anyway, but it'll probably rain because it's Eugene. (laughs) It's a coat. You wear a coat. You you wear a coat, right? Yeah. Yeah. So 
So that's one way you go by probability. But you can also go by custom, by sure. tradition, by law, because mm -hmm. all of these are functions of people's experience over time. Yeah. And are a kind of probabilistic. Yes. A kind of probabilistic wager you're making. Yeah. So you follow those things and probably things will go fine, but you don't need to be certain about it. You don't need to worry if the custom is based on anything real or not. Uh -huh. You just know that it exists because that's a way things are less painful for people most of the time. Yeah. So if you want to avoid suffering, that's how you do it. Yeah. It's interesting that the, those two forms of skepticism have their analogs in our modern day. Mm -hmm. And in fact, certain famous skeptics who, who are sort of closer to our time, sort of modern skeptics, are sometimes painted as if they're one or the other. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, I'm thinking of David Hume, who died, you know, the day the Declaration of Independence is signed. One of the, the common ways to read him is in that sort of, we can't know anything and nothing makes sense. And so, you know, just, you know, it's that more debate sort of oriented kind of thing. And he's just pointing out, well, we can't know anything. And students that I've talked to about Hume have wondered sometimes that you will sometimes get the occasional student who will say, I don't, this doesn't seem to make any sense. And will often favor an interpretation of Hume, which, you know, is at least plausible. That's sort of thinking that he's sort of this other kind of thing where he's going, you, you can't really, you can't really sort of trust philosophers to come up with the exact right answer because it's just coming up with the exact right answer is really hard. So, you know, we have, we've, we have these institutions that are sort of in ways sort of built to prevent corruption and that sort of thing. And let's sort of, let's just go with, we'll, we'll kind of go with the flow there, but we just have to be aware this isn't because it's some kind of decree from God or anything that we're doing mm -hmm. the things that we're doing. And those two, those two kinds of skepticisms end up having sort of very different dynamics because one ends up being, I don't want to say conservative, but it's, it's a lot more just like, I don't know. It's not so radical philosophically. Yeah. As, you could, you could make the distinction that the academic style of skepticism is kind of hubristic. Yeah. It's very arrogant. It mm -hmm. says, no, you can't know it. I can't know it. This is unknowable. Don't you go trying to know stuff. Yeah. And the other is almost quintessentially humble in that it's withholding judgment. Yeah. It's saying there is a truth here. There is something to be known. But I don't think I figured it out. Right. Right. All right. Well, so we have talked about the the only the only school we haven't talked about is cynicism. Why are they called cynics? Well, that's a fun story. <laughs> One of the main cynics was a guy named Diogenes, Diogenes of Sinope. Sinope is a little port town on the Black Sea. My dad was in the army way back in the day, and he was actually stationed at Sinop, which is mm. how you say that nowadays. <laughs> and uh, he and his dad, that is Diogenes, not my dad and his dad, Diogenes and his dad apparently got into trouble there, something about defacing currency. Huh. I'm not entirely like it's a little unclear uh -huh. what exactly they were up to, uh -huh. but they they Diogenes anyways moved to moved to Athens afterwards, <laughs> and he he had a rather odd lifestyle, uh -huh. and because of this odd lifestyle, he got a nickname. They called him Diogenes the dog, and dog in Greek is kune, 
And kune, going into English, turns into cynic. So the cynics are the people who want to live like dogs, basically. Uh-huh. What do we mean by that? Well, they are very much back to nature sorts. Uh-huh. Now, we said that the Stoics revere nature. They want to follow nature, but they see it as something that makes you very unreacting to your external circumstances and very self-contained and very calm and all this sort of thing. Some of the cynics are actually very close to that, but some are a little bit kooky. So the cynics in living like dogs, what they mean is you live according to your nature, not according to the rules society has put on you. Mm -hmm. They don't see man, the social animal, as something that ought to give into its society, if you will. So what does society say about where it's appropriate to defecate? Uh-huh. Not in public. Right. But dogs are like, whatever. Right. I'll do what I want where I want. And, sure. you know, maybe you'll hit me with a stick, but I don't really care because I'm a dog. Yes. The cynic's rule of thumb was if it's not shameful to do in private, it's not shameful to do in public. And they were kind of into the performance art kind mm-hmm. of didactic methods. Mm-hmm. So somewhat weirdly, perhaps, it was considered rude to eat when you were in the agora the marketplace area where they also had political gatherings so diogenes would go around eating in the agora because you know he was making a point right he was also the guy who wandered around with an unlit lamp in the daytime looking for a man like a real a man who's a man as opposed to what exactly well that's a good question you'd have to ask him he lived in a barrel because dogs live in bears. Yeah, clearly. It's like, the, it's like the Greek version of a doghouse. Yeah. There's a great story. Alexander the Great hears that Diogenes is this awesome philosopher, and he happens to be in town. And he goes by, and he says, so Diogenes, how's it going? And they have a little conversation, and he's, he's like, well, okay, I'm kind of this awesome guy. I mean, I'm the great. I just conquered a whole bunch of stuff and started cities named Alexandria. I might be able to help this fellow. I mean, he's sitting in the dirt, barefoot, and he lives in a barrel. So, so Diogenes, can I do anything for you? And famously, Diogenes says, yeah, you could move over a couple of feet and get out of my son. <laughs> the idea get out being, of my son. Yeah, it's like, you yes. know, honestly, dude, you know, you represent all of culture and whatever. Yeah, there's nothing you can really give me except maybe stop blocking my son. Yeah. So it seems then that the the cynics are just going to have contempt for, unlike uh, the 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 you know the Pyrrhian skeptic who's up for customs and institutions and things, mm-hmm. kind of being the flow that they go with. Just because what do we really know? Yeah, and the also- cynic is going to just be like, well, we know that that's wrong. <laughs> yeah, so let's not do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the Stoics also were very respectful for law and custom. And whether that was a function of them being Stoics or a function of most of them being Roman and having a lot of respect for law and custom, I'm not entirely sure. Sure. But they also had a lot of respect for the religions of the day. Uh And they sort of justified this polytheistic gods of the home, gods of the state, blah, blah, blah thing, the same way that the Hindu religion will justify having a whole bunch of gods when really they think everything is one. Uh They're just aspects 
Sure. So that's how the, the Stoics saw it. The Cynics, of course, they don't really care much for the gods mm. if you if you're going to worry about the gods then you have to worry about them as an individual mm. which means not religiously yeah no institutions right right so you know what what are some institutions religion marriage political institutions yeah. all kinds of courts that mm. sorts of thing anything like that they're like nope nope and also, we don't care what other people say. Forget right. it being an institution, something like popular opinion. Right. No. Weirdly, things like art and scientific learning, these are too formal for them. They're yeah. not pure nature. Yeah. Right? Science and art are both steps away from nature yeah. into some kind of representative yeah. form of human creation. Nope, not pure nature enough. We need to live purely by nature. Now, some of the cynics run with this in the same direction as like 1960s living out on commune hippie types uh-huh. where they're like free love and do whatever and just you know smoke Exhibition, your weed exhibitionism exhibitionism that, that sort, sort of thing. thing and there's not much in the way of self-control yeah their take on nature is whatever i am naturally inclined to do mm-hmm which they read as what are my first inclinations, I go chase that. Yeah. Now, Diogenes and the philosophical cynics, that's not their take. Mm-hmm. For them, nature, much as with the Stoics, nature is reason again. Uh-huh. And that means it makes a lot of sense and it has a certain flow to it. Uh-huh. They think culture messes up that flow. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that they think that you should just run around and do whatever. They're yeah. very big on independence, self-sufficiency, yeah. self-control, autonomy. Yeah. Those are all parts of how they think a human being should be in the world. So if you were running around doing random stuff and you and a cynic said, well, what are you doing that for? And you said, oh, I just felt like it. They would not take that as a good reason to yeah. do it for the most yeah. part. They say, well, it doesn't seem reasonable that you're doing that. Yeah. I mean, sure, you're flouting custom. So, you know, good job, I guess. But is what you're doing any better? Sure. It kind of looks like you're just acknowledging human culture by going against it. So one of the one of the moderns who sort of classically is opposed to, you know, quote, society, unquote, is Rousseau. Mm-hmm. And he, but he still seems to want to sort of formalize things, right? Like we want in his in his social contract, for instance, we want to come up with a system of government where everybody sort of gets a say. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a further development than the cynics, but you kind of see how everybody still gets to be an individual there, but it's not just pandemonium. Mm-hmm. And yeah, do do they have that developed of an idea or are they still just kind of like? Well, they are all kind of assuming that there isn't going to be any cynic utopia. Like they will always live in the context. Rousseau Rousseau is just a little bit out there in that particular way. Yeah, no, the cynics assume that they're always going to live in the context of a culture. Uh But if they were going to go in that direction, they would probably be more related to the philosophical anarchists. William Godwin, some of those books, right? Yeah. Where the idea is every individual does their own thing, makes their own law for themselves. And if you have relationships with other people, those are 
purely between those two people yeah. and no one else has anything to say about them. We have to agree to this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, yeah. Sort of one of the classic sort of anarchist argument is, you know, we have to reform. If we have government, we have to reform it every generation mm-hmm. because our kids didn't put the, you know, like, yeah. I didn't agree to this. My parents did. Yeah. And that sort of sense of. Well, everything is on the individual to sort of do that thing. Right. Another thing that's really different between Rousseau and these cynics is Rousseau is very much about nature as expressed through your emotions. Uh-huh. Like human nature is about human emotion. Uh-huh. And the cynics, no. I like see. you are immune to your emotions. I see. You are inured to those sorts of things. You don't let them influence you. Because obviously social pressure can be playing on your emotions. Mm -hmm. And so if you are giving away to your emotions, you're allowing society to kind of shape you in a way that exactly might not be appropriate yeah so they say if if you've got society slash culture and you've got nature and reason on your two sides Mm -hmm. which one is your emotion going to be more responding to just as you said it's not going to be nature and reason so naomi i would like to just i would like to just talk about a couple of takeaways or or maybe observations if you will it's very striking to me how you can have sort of similar ideas among these among these schools and yet the conclusions they reach can end up being very very different right as you were saying earlier the stoics and the cynics both have this sort of idea of nature and reason and how those work now mm-hmm. the the when you get you know when you get really down to it there is divergence but that's that concept is important for both of them. Mm-hmm. The idea that there's a amount of dispassion that's going for both of them, mm-hmm. right? I think there is a tendency sometimes in in discussions of culture or philosophies to kind of go, well, skepticism inevitably leads to nihilism, for instance. Mm-hmm. I think that's the kind of that's a kind of way of thinking about things that doesn't really appreciate how similar kinds of foundations can end up ending in very sort of different places. Mm-hmm. Are there any other sort of striking similarities between these philosophies that end up sort of having different outcomes that you think might be significant that we haven't mentioned already or anything like that, that you feel like you can tease out for us? It seems to me the big difference between stoicism and cynicism, as far as where they diverge mm-hmm. is in their treatment of freedom and determinism mm-hmm. The Stoics are determinists. Everything yeah. is determined, fate, all that sort of thing. The Cynics are everything is individual choice. You mm. rule yourself. You have real choices and real freedoms, that sort of thing. So they start out with the same basic universe, but one says there's no real thing like human freedom. It's only how you respond to things. And the Cynics say, oh, no, it's all freedom. Right, right. It's very striking how... All of these issues, all of these kinds of suffering and many of the solutions that these different schools present are still live issues and solutions. Mm -hmm. They may not go by, you know, they might not have sort of the same labels as, you know, these formal schools do. But the but the idea of like, just go with the flow or or chill or, you know, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, well, as we said before. (laughs) 
or at least I'm speculating that these are at least in some way sort of a logical conclusion from something that we already do, mm -hmm. uh, psychological coping mechanisms. So just to walk through them real quick, Epicureanism, it really makes sense to think long term about what will cause pleasure or pain mm -hmm. in the long term when you make your decisions instead of going with whatever is immediate. Yeah. It makes sense to think about good situations that are lasting as opposed to the kinds that are ephemeral. Uh -huh. Now, does that mean that that is how you should live your life all the time and make all your decisions that way? I don't think so. It seems like there are things that are more important than your pleasure and pain. So I'm just not a hedonist, so I can't go all the way there. But right. as a practical matter, seems like that's not a bad thing to consider. Right. Skepticism. We already talked about the humility of Peronian skepticism, withholding judgment, not being hubristically sure of yourself. I mean, that seems like a good thing. Mm-hmm. Stoicism, being able to put things in perspective and being able to step back from your emotions and look at them and think, how do I want to respond to this instead of yeah. just responding? Thinking about things that you can't change and not freaking out about them. Cynicism, who of us doesn't want a little bit more self-control, mm -hmm. right? Who doesn't want not to give into want to not give into peer pressure. Right. And there's all sorts of things about cynicism the, that are the impulse to be mm -hmm. able, or, or at least we recognize that there are sometimes when society is doing very bad things mm -hmm. and the ability to stop and say, no, exactly. <laughs> we'll not do that. And to have a higher standard for right. them. It was nature and reason, sure. but to have a higher standard by which to judge one's culture. Yeah. It seems all to the good that you would have that. Yeah. The problem is, well, I would say two problems. One is that none of these, I think, are good as a universal code of ethics. Uh -huh. And two, if you take any of them to their logical conclusion, they get a little hinky. Yeah. The one that comes to mind is stoicism. One of the exercises that the stoics recommend is to think, ah, my spouse has died, but they're dead now and they don't exist. So this is nothing to me. Uh -huh. Like, where is mourning? Right. You don't like it doesn't figure in at all. Right. And that's just not a human thing. Right. Aristotle has a nice comment in the Nicomachean Ethics about how our ethics are expectations for ourselves and others should be within the realm of human possibility. Right. And I don't think the Stoics is. I think right. you're dehumanizing yourself yeah. if you go that direction. Yeah. And I tend to think that for each of these schools, if you take it to its logical conclusion and universalize it, yeah. you are transgressing human nature in a yeah. way that does damage. Right. So what starts out as a coping mechanism, a psychologically healthy coping mechanism, ends out doing psychological damage to yeah. you, which is to say damage to your soul, if you will. Yeah, it's it's sort of like each of these coping mechanisms has sort of an we, we has an appropriate place and we see people actually acting like that. Mm -hmm. But we would think it's very strange if someone sort of lived one out all the way. Mm -hmm. I suspect that's the reason why Marcus Aurelius's writings end up being 75% yes. stoic is because he's sort of a real person and as he's sort of trying to be a stoic mm -hmm. his 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 humanity is getting in the way yes. as it were. I tend to suspect that most people who were good people in their time and held one of these philosophies made certain exceptions because they were better than their philosophy. Yeah. Well, and it's striking for sort of the, the story of like David's when his son dies, right? His reaction, 
you know, he's like, well, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And now I know. Yeah. You know, and that that can strike us as sort of a very stoic kind of reaction, possibly. But some people, you know, that's how they that's how they do grief. Mm-hmm. Right. Is they react in this very like, OK, well, now I'm through the tunnel of not knowing what will happen. And since I've sort of passed that now, I'm not my anxiety is sort of resolved in a way mm-hmm. rather than some people acutely feel loss. That's when their emotions are expressed. But it seems like some people sort of go through a lot of anxiety. And once that's resolved, then they sort of calm down or whatever. And so you can sort of see like different human reactions. And some of these philosophies are sort of capturing that. But it, it's not the whole of, yeah. of a person. The difference in the end, I think, between the therapeutic philosophies and you know what somebody like Plato or Aristotle is doing where, you know, the emphasis for them is much more on the philosophy, right? The love of wisdom in sort of knowing what is the right thing given whatever we're talking about, right? Aristotle wants to have humanity inform how is it that we're reacting to things and not just have this sort of set therapy, right, mm-hmm. for how we should react to things. And that's much more in keeping with the Bible. The Bible expects that there's a kind of discernment going into different situations and that that's going to inform kind of how people are reacting and is not sort of prescriptive. This one emotion is sort of the right one to have in this time because people are a lot more complicated than something that you can just prescribe in that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Naomi, thank you for this conversation. Hopefully this has been helpful in giving folks more of a background in the Hellenistic philosophies and kind of the the gap between, you know, the the sort of Athenian age of philosophy and what's going to come later with the Roman world. As usual, if you have questions or comments, you can email us at podcast at gutenberg.edu. Thank you again for chatting with me, Naomi. My pleasure. And we'll be back in a couple weeks. 